Dr. Crystal Beal is a non-binary femme physician who provides high-quality, expert, and individualized queer and gender-affirming medical care through QueerDoc.com. QueerDoc's mission is to raise the bar and lower the barriers to accessing gender-affirming care. Dr. Beal discusses just how frequent trauma is and how what they call consent-driven care is an extension of trauma-informed care. For more on trauma-informed care, see my episode with Dr. Megan Gerber. As physicians, we shouldn't just assume that we have permission to touch our patients in a way that we deem is appropriate. We may assume that it's implied that if they're in the office for, let's say, a thyroid exam, we can just examine their neck. But keep in mind, there may be a history of trauma. Dr. Beal teaches us at what point during the visit we should be asking for consent for parts of the physical exam and even the way we ask some of the parts of the history. This can help us build trust with patients who may have had experiences with the medical establishment that has given them cause for mistrust. We also discuss when is it important and necessary to have a chaperone and when it may not be. Dr. Beal attended Florida State University College of Medicine. They completed their training at Valley Family Medicine Residency, achieving board certification in family medicine. Continuing to see gaps in care for their LGBTQ community, Dr. Beal sought extensive additional training in sexual health, queer health, and gender-affirming care, including self-study, continuing medical education trainings, and shadowing expert at Seattle Children's Gender Clinic. While starting Queer Doc, Dr. Beal supported their private practice through work providing care for people with substance use disorders. Working in this field continued to ignite Dr. Beal's passion for equity in healthcare and advocacy for vulnerable populations. Now board eligible in addiction medicine, Dr. Beal plans to sit for the exams in 2021. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's a month into 2021. You are finally ready to commit to this year being better than the last, but you're still spending your evenings catching up on notes when you could be leaving work with a clean slate. OnTime MD teaches physicians critical time management strategies tailored specifically for the unique demands physicians face. Strategies cover the exam room, inbox and EHR, meetings and more. Popular module, How to Delegate Without Dumping, addresses how to delegate tasks to your staff in a way that doesn't make them feel dumped on, but inspires them to do their best work. Course creator Phil Boucher, pediatrician and podcaster, wants you to join other physicians who understand the value of their time, but are struggling to make a clear and executable plan of action. Join today and save 50% by using the code 2021 at checkout. You also get a money-back guarantee if you don't reclaim three hours a week in the first two months. Now is your chance to join OnTime MD and reclaim your time for good. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash OnTimeMD to get started. Crystal Beal, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Really excited to be here. So what is implied consent and why should physicians be aware of this concept? Yeah. So I always think of implied consent as consent that is not expressly granted by a person And I think of it oftentimes in opposition to explicit consent, where I have specifically asked a person a question of, 
is this okay? Can I do this? And they say yes or no. And I have an explicit moment of consent happen versus implied consent where, where it might happen in our field is a patient's in the office to see me for like a cough or a cold. And I go through the process of talking to them. And then I just start listening to their heart and their lungs. And I put my hand on their shoulder to study myself while I listen with my stethoscope, which is on their chest. And I never asked the patient if it was okay for me to touch them. I just assumed because they were there for the visit, I had implied consent to do the exam. And that's, that's ways I think of differentiating them in our field. Okay. So if I'm going to be doing a procedure on someone, right, I need to get consent, informed consent. They need to sign something. I would assume, and maybe incorrectly, that if I'm just taking a history from someone, I don't need their consent to talk to them, right? Explicit consent. It's implied that I can ask them questions because they they came to the office, right? Or is that incorrect? I think there's obviously different sides to this conversation. And a lot of people might agree with you that that's enough. We talk a lot about informed consent in healthcare though. And informed consent means that someone knows like what's going to happen to them, how it might affect them, the risk of that happening, the benefits of that happening, the potential alternatives, right? Implied consent is not necessarily informed. And so I think that's the big distinguishing feature and why I think it's actually worthwhile to get explicit consent at the beginning of every visit. And I do that with my patients when I set the agenda, like, hey, it's really nice to meet you. I'm, you know, Dr. Beal, Dr. Crystal, Crystal, whatever feels better for you. What would you like me to call you? Awesome. I my love friend. that, by the way. That was a throwback <laughs> to our previous episode. Yes, right? yes. That was yes. a huge takeaway from our huge our, our, our previous episode, which is introduce yourself and then ask the patient how they would like to be, uh, what, what they want to be called or referred to. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. what comedians do a lot. That's a throwback. And I love it. I love it. Thank, Thank you. you for bringing that up again. Yes. Right. And we do the whole pronoun stance. And then I say, I have you on my schedule to talk about X, Y, or Z, whatever, you know, they're coming in for. Does that sound right to you? So first thing I'm already checking, like, is that what they want to talk about? We're setting the agenda. Right. And then the next thing I say, if they say, yes, that's what I want to talk about. I say, okay, during this visit usually takes about in the work I do, you know, 30 to 60 minutes. And we're going to talk about your experience of your gender, your goals for your gender care. We're going to talk about you medically as a whole person so I can get the medical picture, the medical picture of your family. So when we start trying to craft a plan, we're keeping those things in mind. We're going to check in head to toe on your body and go through all your symptoms. And then we're going to come up with a plan together. Does all of that sound okay to you? So again, I'm giving them some information so when they they can choose whether or not they want to participate in that visit, Right. Because not everyone knows when they're coming into our office what the visit might entail. And then after we set the agenda and they say yes, I say, I think consent is essential in healthcare. So if I ask you questions you don't want to answer, you can feel free to say that. Very frequently, it will not affect my ability to take care of you. And if it does, we can navigate that together. I also think it's awesome if you want to know why I'm asking something. Like, feel free to ask because I usually have a reason and it might help you understand what I, information I need more if you understand why I'm asking. So I'm trying to set the tone at the very beginning 
to pull apart that power differential that exists between providers and patients. Because the weird thing that has happened in medicine, right, we're the ones with the power. We have the knowledge, we have the training, we have the access, we have the things someone thinks they might need. And they're coming to us as like a sick, vulnerable person, or maybe not sick, but just wanting something. And so there's this inherent power differential already. But the weird thing is, is like we're talking about this person's life and this person's body, right? And they should have the power over that. They should have the autonomy over that. And so I want to try to like shift that balance as much as possible and put it back in their hands. We have very different practices, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor. So I'm trying to figure out where that would fit in my practice, right? If a patient comes in with nosebleeds, right? Yeah. They've they've set the agenda because they said, you know, they told my medical assistant, I've been having nosebleeds, right? Yeah. So all we're going to talk about is nosebleeds. Unless, of course, it's someone I've seen before. And I, I say something like, so you, before we get to the nosebleeds, let's talk about your sleep apnea. Are you using your CPAP machine, right? So I might add a little something in. Maybe they want to talk about it. Maybe they're frustrated with it and don't want to talk about it. And I, I don't know. I would assume that they would let me know. So, you know, we we since our, our practices are, are so different and yours covers very emotionally charged issues, whereas mine does not, right? Except you're talking about nosebleeds, which are not infrequently caused from inhaling substances. And so, like, that could be a very big part of that visit and conversation with certain people. And so maybe previewing hey, like in this visit, we're going to talk about nosebleeds and common causes. And some of those things, like my, I'm going to ask you about substance use because sometimes that's related and, and giving people again that preview. And that doesn't actually have to happen at the beginning of the visit. I also get revisit explicit consent before more sensitive subjects. One of those usually being substance use. I also like, again, for transparency and care and empowering my patients, oftentimes explain what I'm going to document about substance use as well. Because like, how often do you have someone tell you, oh yeah, I did X, Y, and Z. Are you going to put that in my chart? <laughs> and then you're stuck as the provider being like, what do I do? Like, because yeah. I don't want to be fraudulent. I want to document. I want to help this person be safe. And yet at the same time, once it's in there, particularly with electronic medical records, it's never going away. Yeah. But could I give implied consent or get, get not implied, could I get the consent while, as it's happening, right? Like, well, so one of the issues that could cause nosebleeds would be uh, substance use in the nose. By the way, feel free if this is, if this is a line of question you're not comfortable with, let me know and we could, we could bypass it. So kind of as it's going, not get it before. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I implement both strategies. Um, again, I feel like it's really nice. Like setting an agenda is something we do so often in primary care fields anyways, because so often people come to us with like 15 things they want to talk about. So we have to set an agenda to be able to like tackle at least a couple of things effectively. And so I think kind of explaining what that looks like to them is just part of that process to me. And so I check in there, but then I do also check in throughout the visit, like before talking about substance use, before talking about genitals, sexual health, before talking about trauma. Um, All of those things are topics I typically check in about explicitly before I start talking about them. And I do give a little preview like you did of saying like why it matters to me medically. Like why do I care about this medically? So they know it's not just morbid curiosity, which unfortunately working in gender care is like 
so many of my patients, like, and, and myself have experienced like providers curiosity that has nothing to do with like why we're there, you know, right. But I can't tell you how many people get asked about their genitals to at the ear, nose and throat doctor. <laughs> a check, uh, it's, it was going to come up later in the visit, but I'll say it now. It's a checkup from the neck up. That's all we do. <laughs> Otolaryngologists stick to that. All right. I listen to lungs too, because a lot of my patients have asthma, but okay. So what specialties do you think should be most vigilant about this, right? There's, I think some, some of those are readily apparent, OBGYN, urology, anytime you're, you're dealing with genitalia uh, or anytime. You're- primary care. Like, again, because a big part of what I think primary care is, is like educating patients and, and advocating for patients and helping them understand how to access healthcare and how to move through healthcare and how to advocate for themselves. Like Being a safe space. Yeah, yeah. So creating a safe space. And so I think exactly right. I think that's a big part of, um, should be a big part of any primary care practice, period. Whether there's going to be a sensitive exam or not, or, you know, particularly meeting new patients and welcoming them into the practice. Obviously, consent over the course of a long-term relationship, particularly interpersonal relationships, implied consent can become much more acceptable. But again, in professional relationships, I think we should always get explicit consent before we touch anyone because we don't know what has happened between now and the last time we saw them and whether or not touching is going to be okay. Okay. So now we've moved beyond the history and we're getting into the into the physical. Okay. Yeah. So you're about to start your physical exam. How do you enter into that? How do you get the consent? And by the way, you had told me about consent-driven care. So is yeah. what we're talking about now referred to as consent-driven care? I made that phrase up. I oh. love that you asked me what it was. <laughs> like it was a real thing. And I'm like, oh no, it's just like a thing I'm passionate about. Um, I tried to like cons- um, search pr- other podcasts to see if it was good because I, I listen, I don't read. I don't. I, I, I don't read. I listen to a lot of podcasts though because I spend some time in the car. So I tried to find consent-driven care and no, I couldn't couldn't find it. But let's coin the term. Let's, okay. Yes, right. It's happening right now. It is happening here. Consent-driven care. Okay. So, so, so let's let's talk about the hashtag. Okay. So let's let's talk about that. Consent-driven care. And at what point, you know, now now that you're starting your physical exam, what do you say to the patient? Yeah. Typically, it depends on the kind of exams that I'm going to be doing, right? And like what is going into it. And so, if it's like going to be a more sensitive exam. I am explaining kind of the whole play-by-play of what's going to happen before anyone takes their clothes off, right? So if I'm doing any kind of pelvic exam, IUD insertions, which I did a ton of when Trump got elected, you know, any kind of genital exam, rectal exam, anything like that, we're talking about what's going to happen before anyone has taken their clothes off. Because you know how much harder it is to say no to a doctor when your clothes are off? Right. Like, yeah, as if the power differential isn't big enough to begin with. Now you're naked. Now you're naked and you're sitting on a paper with a paper in your lap and like you just want to leave, but you can't run out. Yeah. So an explanation of all that's going to happen beforehand. If it's more like I'm going to be listening to hearts and lungs and things like that, I say, hey, this is the part where I would typically do some exams that I will talk you through um, each one while we do it. Are you know, are you okay moving into that section and, and sitting on the exam table? And then if they say yes and get up there and, and I say whether or not clothes are going to have to come off. Right. So, and then 
once are up there, I say, okay, I want to listen to your heart now. And so I'm going to place my stethoscope on your chest and I'm going to move it around to a few different positions. Um, I won't be touching you anywhere else. And I can't hear very well if you start saying something to me. So if you need to get my attention or if you want me to stop, just raise your hand in front of my face. Just tap real hard on the bell of the stethoscope. <laughs> right. And, and, I, and I also am saying, is that okay with you before I actually do it? Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm getting explicit consent before each actual encounter of touching. And this is, oh my gosh, this is maybe one of the reasons consent-driven care became important to me. I'm, you probably heard it in medical school, maybe. Did you hear about like the power of healing touch and how important it is for doctors to touch their patients? Yes, absolutely. Even though I went to medical school yeah, a while yeah. ago now. Yeah. 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 They talked about that. Yes. Right? Yes. Did anyone talk about whether or not you should ask your patient if they want healing touch before you touch them? No. Yes. Oh, no, that was not that was not covered. It was not covered at all, right? And I was at, so the other part of the work I do is substance use disorder treatment. So both the populations I work with primarily are incredibly vulnerable. And it's really questionable what the rates of like provider sexual inappropriate behaviors and touching and assault is with patients. Like we don't have research, we don't have good numbers. You know, we're not collecting the data to be frank, which is kind of scary. But one study said like maybe 11%, one in 10, right? Oh, wow. And then you can also take that information and think that probably only about one in 10 people who are assaulted report it. So it's like kind of scary numbers and not great, right? And then take on top of that, all the populations I work with are incredibly vulnerable and a lot of them have already experienced trauma. Yeah. Right. And so healing touch is only healing if we want it. And so it's absolutely essential that we ask people before we touch them. And I was at this substance use disorder treatment conference. Um, it's one of the like bigger national ones, um, like the year before the pandemic. And some doctor stood up there and talked about like how important it was, like in the commentary section about touching patients. Like, and I just wanted like, I wanted to rip his fucking head off. I'm not even going to lie. Because I'm like, do you know how many of your patients have been sexually assaulted by someone who looks like you? Do you have any idea? Have you asked any of them? But not to take away from the importance of, of that, right? Yes. Like, there is, there, is, there is power to it, right? Like, yeah. the patient, they're, uh, they're visibly upset. Like, a, a hand on the shoulder is not inappropriate. However... It may be, it may be unwelcome. You have to, you have to be able to. So I think there's some value to reading the room. Convince me, you know, convince me otherwise, right? I'm just, I'm trying to navigate a visit, right? Because I, let's say I, I, I'm seeing a patient and it's not even related to their visit. They just happened to tell me that they their husband passed away of COVID recently. And I, you know, that's happened to, I'm sure, a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast right now, right? right. They saw a patient. It's been a patient of theirs for a while. And they happened to divulge that a loved one just died. I want to be able to, you know, put a, give them a tissue, put a hand on their shoulder, like be there for them emotionally and you know, let them know that I'm, I'm with them. Um, yeah. And so, so what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? How do I do this the right, right way? Right. Well, I have lots of questions about that. 
Okay. One, like, is this a patient you've known for years and you've already had interactions where you've checked in on that and that's okay? And so maybe implied consent in this moment is acceptable. Like, that's a different situation than, like, patients getting treatment for substance use disorder who, like, you know, have been raped multiple times. Like, yeah. you know, and you don't know very well. Like, you're just seeing them for 15 minutes to get them started on methadone. Like, you know, different situations, right? Also, though, like is it really our job? Like healing touch, touch can be really healing when it's welcome, when it feels safe, when it's coming from the place we want it to come from. And it's a very important part of like taking care of our um, neurophysiology, right? As Western medicine physicians, like should that actually be one of our jobs? Like we have massage therapists, we have physical therapists, we have Reiki healers, we have friends, we have family, like, is Wait, Reiki healers there, they're not using physical touch, right? Just to clarify, they're that's they're, that is they're not actually touching. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Good point. They're they're like a little bit away. Yeah. But you know, I really question whether or not like it needs to be part of our work. And I really question again, like uh, you know, I think any unwelcome touch is actually inappropriate touch. And the fact that maybe that ha- like didn't seem true a few moments ago mm-hmm. is like, again, we have a culture where we don't teach that concept from, from the get go. Like, right. We teach kids that like it's flirting when other people touch you, when you don't want to be touched, that is like a common message in our culture. Right. And then we have politicians who sexually harass and sexually assault people and get to continue their practice. We have physicians who sexually assault people and get to keep their license. Yeah. And so I guess I just, I really struggle to think like, if I haven't asked you if it's okay to touch you, I don't know that any touch is appropriate. And so I'm going to wait and ask. And I might say to my patient who's crying, you look really sad right now. Would it be helpful if I like put my hand on your shoulder and give you this tissue? So the way I've done it and this awkwardness might, I don't know, just let me know. Yeah. I don't come from a family where touching is done, <laughs> right? My wife kind of always points that out whenever I see my dad. It's like the one-armed, pat, awkward, like like we're not big. And her family's like the complete opposite, right? And now that I have three boys, it, it, we're getting a little off, but I, I heard something once and it really stuck with me is if you have boys, teach them touch that isn't violence and isn't sexual, Yeah. right? They need to learn this, that there are other forms of touch that are not violent and not sexual that are just, that are touch, right? Right. So what I will tell a patient sometimes is, and again, I'm looking to improve. So if I'm doing this wrong, please, or could, could improve it in any way, is I'll tell them, I don't come from a family where, you know, touching is a big deal, but, you know, you seem pretty upset is, is it okay if, and then, you know, mate, like, like give them a hug or something yeah. like, is that, is that okay? So like kind of put the awkwardness on me so that if they are not interested in that, then they can, it gives them an easy, an easier out. Or is there a better way to do that? Yeah. I think there's like lots of options. I think one is like having this conversation, having our whole culture of care providers start having this conversation. So we're all thinking about it because the more minds I think we have on the subject, like the better options we're going to get Two, I think like always 
I think a lot of times, you know, we're taught to just reflect what we're seeing. Like, you look really sad right now. How can I support you best? So like just giving them an open-ended option, right? To let me know instead of instead of trying to assume it's a tissue mm-hmm. they need or it's a hug they need or it's a pat on the shoulder they need. Tissue is medical school. That's what they taught us in medical school. <laughs> right. If someone's crying... Don't give them a tissue. Get them a tissue. No, get them a tissue. Oh. Get them a tissue. Because then it somehow, it acknowledges that they're crying and that it's okay. And like mm-hmm. that was the, it, it, it was like the nonverbal permission for them to sit with their emotions. That's hilarious. When did you go to med school? I graduated in 2006. Okay. I graduated, no, I started in 2008. Okay. Like two years later, they were telling us don't offer people tissues. Because then they're going to uh, stay longer and you really will have to get on to the next patient. No, no, no. They said like offering someone tissues like almost is like, it's kind of like asking them to clean their face up and stop crying. Oh, so maybe, I, so do I stop giving them tissues? Who knows? I don't know. Right? right? Read the room. Read the room. <laughs> read the room. Right. I Maybe I'm not as good at reading the room as you are, but I think it's just easier to ask. That is like, definitely not true. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just easier to ask like, oh, I see you look kind of upset right now. Is there is there something I can do to support you? You know, is there something I can do to help make this easier for you? And so I think honestly, just asking like, and a lot of people like won't know what they need. And I have to be okay with that answer, you know, and I have to give it a moment and say, okay, thank you for sharing. Would you like to continue with the rest of the visit or would you like some more time? You know, but I think always like, Letting people tell us what they need instead of trying trying to mind read and come up with something that maybe will work or maybe won't. Yeah. Wow, that's really <laughs> that tissue thing. <laughs> that is so interesting. That it's regional. It's a regional thing. It's a regional thing. <laughs> they tell us half of what we learn in med school is gonna be wrong, but it takes that they definitely told us they to know what half, right? right? I, I think a big takeaway from this is just it needs to be on your mind. It needs to be on your mind. And you may not hit a home run every time. You may not get it exactly right. You, yeah, right? But but it but it needs to be something that's that's on your mind. And, and I see it as, as an otolaryngologist with, with our physical exam, two specific times. One is the neck exam, right? You're examining someone's thyroid. You're examining their submandibular glands. You're examining the lymph nodes. You're and you put your hand on someone's neck without them aware that that's what's happening next, and you you will find out very quickly if there's a history of trauma there. So, uh, and and not the way to to go about it. So, I and I like that you can just change what I would normally say, which is I'm going to examine your neck now. To is it okay if I examine your neck now? Because it's not right. And efficiency matters, right? Yeah. Efficiency matters. So just changing the the language a little bit. Is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do this now? I think doesn't change the cadence of the visit at all. It, it, it all can keep running smoothly. And the other part that I see it interestingly is with the, it's not with the oral exam, like, you know, open up and say, ah, oh, you know, look with the tongue compressor, you know, people gag, whatever, but the nasal exam, like you put in a speculum, a cold metal speculum in someone's nose. That is, it's not painful. It's not, it's not even that uncomfortable, but for whatever reason, like that's just one of the more sensitive parts of, of our exam. But still, the point being, can't is it okay if I do this next? Is it okay if I do this next? Is it okay? Is verbal consent adequate? Or do we ever 
for at least for the physical exam. Right. Does it ever need to be more than that? I think so. And I think I love what you said, just changing a few words in your, because we all as providers get that rote, we're going through a procedure, we're going through an exam, and we say it the same way every time, right? And so just changing a couple words in that cadence, like I think that's a fabulous approach. And I remember being in med school and narrating for our OSCEs. Did you have to do those? Um, What's OSCE? I may have. Observed clinical something, something, <laughs> but it's where they watch us with a patient. Oh yeah, we um, did to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so you had to narrate everything you were doing and thinking so they could know that you were checking off the things that needed to be done. And I remember thinking, I can't wait to be out of school and not have to tell everyone everything that I'm doing because this is just dumb and I'm never going <laughs> to use this skill. <laughs> and then I, little did I know, I got out in practice and I started telling patients even more because like, again, it's shocking when someone does something to our bodies and we don't know what's coming and we don't expect it. And yes, it can be re-traumatizing and horrible if we have a history of trauma. And even if we don't, it can, it can create that trauma for us. And so I think it's really great that like you can find ways to implement that in a streamlined way in your care. But yes, I think verbal consent, if it's non-corrode, like core, I can't say that word. Non- I don't know that word. Roast, corrode, coarse, coarse. Coerced, coerced, non like you're not forcing you don't force them to do it. <laughs> yes, if it's genuine permission, yeah. Right, if it's if it's genuine consent, if it's informed, right, and it's explicit, and they have capacity, right, to provide it. I think I, then I think verbal consent is fine, you know. And I think I've talked, I see this come up a lot because in gender affirming care, we actually do still very often have patients sign a written consent form to start a gender affirming medical treatments and not, not surgeries or procedures, which for all surgery and procedures, like, you know, a lot of times people sign something, but just the medicines, we have them sign stuff. And we don't tend to do that in other fields, like have people sign a consent form to start a medicine. And so we're really asking ourselves, why are we doing this? And most of the attorneys are like, well, it doesn't actually really provide that much protection anyways. Like, if you had just documented in the chart that you had this conversation and they said, yes, like it's the same amount of protection as having them sign this form and as having you document it um, appropriately. Mm -hmm. So I tend to think verbal consent in those with, if it meets those parameters is is great. I also, here's a moment where I do actually try to read the room. Is it enthusiastic, right? Like, are they going like, "Uh, well, yeah, maybe. Okay. Then I'm going to pause and say, Hey, it seems like maybe you're concerned about something. Like, what are you thinking? What's going on? Right? Or is it like, okay, doc, whatever, doc. Can you stop asking me, doc? <laughs> so again, that's where like I might start trying to read the room more. Yeah. 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 But you 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 have to be confident in that, right? Yeah. If you're not sure, you know, ask. always always are on the side. Yeah. Yeah. And ask. Yeah. Um you had also mentioned in uh, our email exchange a, a third person in the room during an exam. Mm. When should a third person be in the room? And if not standard, when should one be offered? Yeah. Yeah. This is like hot topic in the medical world, right? And no one's really decided on like what chaperones are and who they should be and what the standard should be and all of those things. I think First place is someone who works a lot, again, with vulnerable populations. I always encourage, 
when I'm doing any kind of community education event, I always encourage my patients to bring a support person if they have someone they feel safe with. Because it is much easier to stand up to an abuser or a bully or just an idiot when you have someone you trust with you. And like, I can tell you from personal experiences. One time I was in the ER for a hemorrhagic ovarian cyst. Those are very unpleasant, FYI. And the ER physician, I had been like seen, I had been there for like 20 hours and gotten transferred one from one facility to another. And the ER physician came in after my ultrasound and was like, okay, you have a, you have an ovarian cyst. Like these are fine. You don't need pain medicine. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to do a brief exam and you'll be good to go. She hadn't talked to me. She hadn't gotten any history. Like she hadn't even asked me my name. She hadn't examined me. And she told me my diagnosis, which did not fit my presentation at all. She obviously did not know I was a physician. And I said, no, I don't want you to touch me. Cause like this person just came in and made this pronouncement and was like really rude. And she goes, she's like, no, it's fine. I'm just going to do this brief exam and starts washing her hands. And I said, no, you're not like, you're not going to do it. Yeah. Right. But I had my family there. Like and I'm a physician. Who's and you're a physician. Yeah, you're like well, the one in, you know, 100,000 that's able to actually push back. Advocate for myself and yeah. know that what's happening is not okay. And even if it's the standard, I don't care because I don't want it to happen to me. But another time I was in urgent care just for like a, a migraine that we couldn't get to break. And so they were like giving me IV fluids, but they gave me IV Benadryl and Compacine and I was super agitated. Um, right? I was like losing it and I had no family there. And I just asked the nurse, I was like, I just want to go home now. Like, I don't want that other bag of fluids. I want to go home now. And she's like, no, you have to have this. And that was the end of the conversation. For a migraine. What? <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I get, it's not, it's not technically a migraine. I get um, rebound headaches from NSAIDs and Tylenol. Hmm. Yeah. And they're like five days No, long. but nonetheless, it's not like you could die if you, yeah. don't, you don't get this. Yeah, no, it's not an important, it's like, like I didn't need already another. build you for it. So yeah. Yeah. I'd already gotten like one bag of fluids. Yeah. Like I'd gotten the medicine and like, yeah, I'm not dying. It's yeah. just a rebound headache from insides that like, I didn't want to be debilitated by for five days, you know? Yeah. And, but this nurse just told me no. And I didn't have my family there. And I was like all strung out on antihistamines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay. <laughs> Mad as a hatter, hot as a yeah. What are, what are all those anticholinergic? That's that's a mnemonic. I don't remember. Right. Uh, yes. I wouldn't recommend that for anyone. No, no, that sounds Bye. terrible. So yeah, excellent point. Right. There was a circumstance in which you were able to advocate for yourself, and there was another circumstance where same person not able to ad- advocate for themselves. So right. yeah, and I think a big part of that for me was like whether or not my family was there to help me like stay grounded because there was yeah. the people I feel safe and secure with. So if you can bring a support person with you, um, someone you feel safe with and you can kind of like pregame, like, okay, this is like maybe my magic word. That means I need to leave <laughs> or I need you to start being involved and I need you to start talking or yeah. maybe from the get go, I want you to just ask questions whenever you want. I want you to be part of this visit because you might see things I don't see. So that's like a third person that if someone has access to, amazing. That's but, not a formal chaperone, which is what we were kind of talking about. Yeah, so the, the, the our audience is predominantly physicians. So yeah. when should we as the provider, other than recommending to our patients that they always bring someone, tougher to do right now in the age of COVID because 
you know, people are being told you have to come by yourself because right. of the risk of infection. But you know, when this is all when this yeah. is all behind us. Thanks. But as as providers, when should we be bringing someone in the room with us, either for our own legal protection or for our patients' protection, or both? Yeah, and we don't know how much legal protection it offers. Like we don't have the research on that yet yeah. either. So, like you know, litigation has gone up at the same time use of chaperones has gone up as well. And we don't have any literature saying whether or not chaperones actually reduce litigation or improve litigation outcomes yet. Um, So that will be interesting. That's probably coming down the pipeline. But I think it's kind of like as a practice, maybe decide, particularly some of these practices like primary care, OBGYN, pediatricians, those kinds of things like decide as a practice, what is our policy? Like are we going to implement chaperones? Are we not? Like, and if we're going to implement them, are we implementing them across the board? And I think it's always because you need to decide that before you decide what you're going to say to a patient. Because if I say, would you like a chaperone? And they say no, but like, I feel like I want one. I'm in a very awkward position all of a sudden, right? Yeah. And so decide that as a practice. And then um, don't assume that your patient wants a chaperone that's appears to be the same gender. Also don't assume there are only two genders, please. Um, And so, you know, if as a practice, you're going to decide to use chaperones, like, and you're going to decide not to let patients choose for certain exams, whether or not a chaperone is going to be present, right? Then go ahead and have that as part of your intake paperwork and intake orientation to the patient. Like, we do utilize chaperones um, for these specific exams. Um, There's not an opt-out option or there is an opt-out option. Um, we know we have chaperones available. There's an opt-in option. So kind of having that just as part of the like intake orientation process. So like you don't have to like be awkward and weird in the moment um, is really nice. Um, and then, yeah, if you're going to use chaperones, asking the patient like if they like they have a preference in gender, right, of their chaperone, I think is letting them choose um, again, right? Because like, I feel like when chaperones started, there was just this like women have to chaperone women and or only male providers have to have chaperones when they're doing, you know, sensitive exams on females. And it's like, it leaves kind of like, the, like granted, most of the people who like inappropriately sexually touch other people are like cis males. Yeah. You had sent me that article that said 100% actually, it wasn't most, it was 100%, at least in the cases that were cited there. Yeah. And the like 101 cases. Yeah. Yeah. But still, you know, I think it's worth recognizing that one, like oftentimes assault isn't even about sex. So like we, like, cause sometimes the question around sexual orientation will come up and like, again, sexual assault is about like power, not sex. So, um, but um, just checking in on like what the patient would prefer for gender instead of just assuming. Um, and definitely any practice that's going to use a chaperone, use that chaperone irrelevant of the provider's gender. So it's not like some of the providers have to have chaperones and other providers don't, right? Um, standard, standard, standard. Yeah. 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 So trying to standardize it, trying to just make it like orientation paperwork part of the process to like simplify some of those awkward conversations. The American AMA, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and ACOG all have statements about chaperones and, you know, what they think is appropriate. And, um, you know, I think 
American Academy of Pediatrics, it's like anyone under the age of 10 should have like their parent, guardian, caseworker, or someone else present. Over the age of 10, there should be a chaperone present for like sensitive invasive exams with some room for patients to advocate for themselves as they get older. Yeah. If they're like, no, I would rather not have the other person in here. And so I think, again, just like standardizing things and streamlining it would be a better approach than saying like, oh, well, you're a dude. So like, we're going to send this lady in with you while you do this lady's exam. <laughs> and and you're a lady, so I'm not going to worry about you ever doing anything wrong or like taking advantage of anyone or causing harm. Like those, like. Yeah, a little, too, little too simple, little too binary. Little too binary. Yes, for sure. Right. And then there's even like, this is one of those things, again, like, I feel like is so weird. There's a physician right now in Washington who's licensed, like he's going to go before the board. His license is restricted. He's still allowed to practice, but he's only allowed to see men. Because if you're not ethical enough to see half the population, you are ethical enough to see the other half. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wow. That's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think You're horrible to half the population, but we're going to assume that you're probably just fine to the other half. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, You're a decent human being, upstanding citizen, and someone we want to continue to renew their license. Yes. And I think it's one of those things, like, I... I didn't think about this as much when I was doing general primary care and seeing people a lot for coughs and colds and depression and anxiety, right? But like the more and more work I do with more and more vulnerable populations and the more and more violation of patients' rights I see, you know, and the more experiences I have as patient myself, like I've, I've just had my mind boggled, right? And so I've gotten more interested in it. And so then I do things like pull up the Washington State Board Association and look at who has you know, reports and cases against them and what they're for. That's all public record. Yeah. Right. But I literally got hired at the methadone clinic because they assumed I was a woman because they had a provider who had been sexually harassing patients. There's board action against him. And they felt like they just needed to hire a lady doctor because then it wouldn't happen. You know, like they didn't even ask me questions about my training. They were like, you, you have ovaries and an MD, (laughs) you are hired, (laughs) let's go. And I was like, this seems really weird. (laughs) Like that this, that everyone else here thinks this is normal seems really weird. What's going on? And then it was like this deep dive of like what's actually happening. And I had to treat our most vulnerable people. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I had no idea because I feel like. I had this optimistic heart going into med school. Like, you know, I went to med school to help people. And I felt like the people I was in school with were there to help people too. And we're all generally like decent people. And so I kind of thought like all doctors were decent people. Yeah. 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 We're people. Mm -hmm. With all the wonderful and terrible things that come with being people. Yeah. Only probably more amplified. Yeah. So that's just been fascinating. And so I feel like the more we as providers who are decent people can shift the autonomy back into the patient's control and model what a healthy visit should look like, the more like agency they're going to have if they end up in an unhealthy, unsafe space to say, gosh, this seems really different. And I don't think it's right. Yeah. And a lot of the examples I have been using have been maybe sounding extreme in the context of like sexual assault, 
but like one, it happens so much more than we realize. So like, and I don't think I ever talked about it in med school. Like no one brought it up that that was a thing. So we should have that conversation, but two, like it can, for someone who has been like assaulted or doesn't want you to touch them, it feels like assault when you touch them, if you did not ask first. So like that, you know, that hand on the knee, that hand on the shoulder can feel incredibly traumatic and violating of a person's agency and autonomy if we have not sought consent. So I think it's just like something working with the populations I do, like I've gotten so interested in and so passionate about. Um, so sorry if I like soapboxed you too much, but I have. Oh, I love it. I love it. Dr. <laughs> Crystal Beal, queerdoc.com, consent driven care, hashtag consent driven care. I love it. Every time I, I speak to you, I am, I feel like I'm a better doctor and a better person. So thank you. Thank you for all the great work that you're doing and for bringing this to my audience's attention. So implied yeah. consent should be on our minds with every patient and it should start becoming our, our habit and our practice. So thank you again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Such a great show with Dr. Beal. I love having them on. Before we end, be sure to use your 15% off code for On Time MD by Dr. Phil Boucher to gain control of your life, your focus, and your time. Reach out at drpodcastnetwork.com slash ontimemd and use code 2021 at checkout. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.